Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program of the Commonwealth Club of California. Frankly, it's remarkable that we're able to continue the wide range of public interesting programs that uh, the Commonwealth Club is so famous for in this disruptive time. But we couldn't do it without the support of all of you as our viewers. And that programming is basically only available because of your willingness to help support the club. So in that light, I suggest uh, consider donating to the club. It's very simple today. You just text the word donate, not donut, but donate to 415-329-4231 or go to the Commonwealth Club website and you can do that. This is a special program today, at least in my heart, uh, because this is really the initiation of a series of programs the Commonwealth Club will be doing over the next several years. It's The intent is to explore the uh, origins of our democracy, the fundamental principles that grounded it, and then how that democracy has evolved, um, considering particularly Uh, obviously current events and the ability of our present system of government to survive what I'll call existential threats to the structure that our founders established back in 1787. For example, the pandemic, I think, is exposing in real time many of the fault lines that may exist in the system by which we're allegating uh, governing powers. And we see as much declination of the willingness to exercise responsibility as there is arrogation of power. Uh, So today's program with uh, David Kennedy will really set the stage for future programs. And what we're going to do is delve in depth into specific issues that threaten what we'll call the effective functioning of our governance system. Just to give you a sense um, of a few of those, uh, the combination of the disinclination of Congress today to fulfill its traditional constitutional role, and the contemporary or sequential uh, growth of power of the executive branch. Another area will be the role of campaign finance and the need for House members to be reelected every two years and how that influenced decision-making. A big one is, of course, fragmentation of traditional media and the growing role of social media informing, informing and disinforming public opinion. On a positive note, we're also going to look at the ability of Congress and our system generally to achieve greater social justice and equity and how the systems can be restructured to maybe affect that. We're honored for our initiating of this program to have David Kennedy, Emeritus Professor of History at Stanford University. David is going to provide a foundation for our discussion. Of course, David is one of our most preeminent American historians, having received the Pulitzer and the Bancroft Prize. Um, David was chosen purposefully for this initiating uh, program because of his scholarship regarding the economic um, and cultural analysis of our uh, society and also its social and political history. And he pays particular attention to the national character and our American psyche, which is playing such a large role in how we see events play out today. 
Uh, after his remarks, uh, David and I will have a brief discussion of some of the issues David raises, and I'll save plenty of time for audience questions. You just submit those through the chat window on your screen. So without further um, focus of time on the outline, let's get to the meat of the question. And welcome to you, David. Uh, honored to have you here. Well, thank you, Roy. It's an honor to me to be here with you and to be the inaugural presenter in this uh, series on the future of American democracy. Um, I'm a card-carrying lifetime historian, so of course I believe everything has a history and we really can't navigate the future very well if we don't understand a bit of history. So it's hard to know where you're going if you don't know where you've come from. So I wanna begin with a few remarks about uh, the Constitutional Convention of 1787 in Philadelphia by way of highlighting some of the, what I'll call the architectural features of our constitutional democracy, uh, which we still live with uh, here two uh, third centuries later, uh, and try to suggest as we go along here this morning or this afternoon, <clears throat> how some of those, <clears throat> pardon me, some of those features are still uh, to be regarded with great admiration, and some are perhaps more troublesome than our founders anticipated. I'm getting ahead of the story. So let's go back to 1787. Uh, I've recently been rereading um, James Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention, which I hadn't visited in a long time. And it's really striking to see how gritty and granular his account is uh, of how, how sharp and fluid the debate was at the Constitutional Convention about many items, including not least of all the invention of the executive. And I say invention advisedly because the presidency as it was defined at that uh, constitutional convention, as we've lived with it ever since, really was a, a piece of political innovation uh, in the Western world. There was no precedent in the colonial period for pres the presidency. And um, the way it was defined then in 1787 has been with us ever since. But I wanna focus particularly as we begin this discussion today <clears throat> on some other features of the constitution of 17. 87, the Convention of 1787, particularly the, the dispute that almost immediately presented itself between the larger states, the more populous states, <clears throat> and the least populous states. <clears throat> Again, one needs to remember that for purposes of waging the Revolutionary War, the, the 13 colonies came together under the so-called Articles of Confederation, but they still retained a lot of their, each, each colony retained a lot of its own sense of its own sovereignty. And indeed, the title that they adopted for themselves, the United States, is something we need to remember. It's We take it for granted, maybe. But let me remind you that down to the time of the American Civil War, essentially, in common vernacular American speech, <clears throat> the United States was rendered as a plural noun. And indeed, as late as 1945, in a speech on the floor of Parliament, Winston Churchill referred to the United States in, in the plural. He said, the United States stand at this moment at the summit of the world. But back to the 18th century and early 19th century, down to the time of the Civil War, various states had a very deeply rooted sense of their individual and respective sovereignties. Uh, and they'd come together for certain limited purposes under the rubric of the United States of America. So one of the first things that the constitutional delegates had to deal with was how to set up the scheme of representation in the national legislature. 
<clears throat> the Virginia delegates proposed something called, not surprisingly, the Virginia Plan, in which they advocated a unicameral legislature in which each state would have the same, uh, pardon me, in which, in which each state would be represented proportionate to its population. The smaller states, led by New Jersey, uh, which had less population, feared being bullied by the larger states in the legislature and held out for a unicameral legislature in which each state would be represented by absolutely equal representation, where New Jersey and Virginia would have the same number of delegates, whatever that number was determined to be. The great compromise that unlocked this uh, deadlock, uh, it's known to history as the great compromise, gives us the bicameral legislature that we've had ever since, in which one chamber, the House, is based on population. That's the so-called New Jersey plan. And the other chamber, the Senate, is based on geography, you might say. Uh, that's the, uh, the Virginia plan. So every state got two senators and in the upper chamber, and the lower chamber states got representation proportionate to their <clears throat> population. And since the 1960s, California has been the largest state by population, so has the largest delegation in the House of Representatives. Now, not incidentally, this uh, scheme of organizing the legislature, which is a mix of geographic and demographic, you might say, factors, also has implications for this notorious institution of the Electoral College, because it was determined in the Electoral College, each state would have votes proportionate to the sum of its congressional delegations in both chambers, uh, House and Senate. So every state had a minimum of three because every state had two senators and at least one representative. And that's the institution that we've lived with uh, ever since. So that, I just mentioned that by way of keeping in mind that architecture or structure of our national system of representation and election by way of understanding what's been happening in our elections in recent years. So I'm gonna put up some slides here if I, there we go. Uh, let me see if I can maybe make this a little more technically uh, attractive. Um, and I don't seem to be able to do it. Maybe, well, in any case, uh, let's just go with this slide here to start with. <clears throat> this is by now a very familiar um, representation of how the vote went in 2020, just a, a month or so ago. And I won't belabor the point that this is something that uh, we're now all familiar with even though some members of our body politic are still disputing it. Uh, but I think it's safe to say that the history will record that this is the way <laughs> the election of 2020 actually uh, went down. It's not terribly useful from an analytic point of view uh, to study this map because it tells us something obvious that this is the way the states voted. But if we really wanna understand what's going on and has been going on in our society, at least at the level of presidential elections, for the last few cycles, uh, we need to get a little more granular and keep in the back of our mind again, that architecture that comes down to us from 1787, especially in the form of the electoral college. So here's a, <clears throat> I think a, a much more informative view of what happened in the two, 2020 election. It's the recording the uh, voting results by county. And here you can see there, it's, again, even this is a bit distorted for the very simple reason, <clears throat> excuse me again, the, the further we go west in the United States, for reasons that I suppose are obvious, especially with regard to the interior west, the counties get bigger. So a lot of counties show up quite large on the, this map, they actually don't have much population. 
But again, there's a, it, nonetheless, there, there's a, some pretty obvious uh, facts that we can derive from this map, and that is that the, the counties that voted Democratic or blue are pretty specifically locatable in the Northeast and the Southeast and the region between essentially Puget Sound and Houston, Texas, along the coast and the border with Mexico. Uh, so this is a this is a, pr a much more useful way I think to to think about <clears throat> the way our fellow citizens voted in the election last month, and here I would just want to try to draw another angle of vision into this analysis, and that is where people live in this country. There are th approximately three thousand one hundred counties in the United States. 3,100 counties. And again, you see them represented here. Some of them are almost too small to show up. Others quite large, but again, a bit of distortion because of the size of counties in the West. 3,100 counties. Half the American population lives in just 146 counties. And this is a trend. This represents a trend that's been in place for a century or more where Americans started moving to the city, you might say, born in the countryside, moved to the city, Sometime in mid-19th century, that's, this trend becomes starts to become quite obvious, and the rural population shrinks, and the urban and suburban population, metropolitan populations, uh, expand uh, steadily over the last century and a half or more. So that by today, uh, as a people, we are heavily concentrated in just a relatively small number of places in the United States, 146 counties out of 3,100 approximately. Um, I say approximately for technical reasons because some states, Connecticut is an example, don't have counties. They have townships and they often get counted as counties, but strictly speaking, they're not. But that's a that's a footnote technical detail of the kind that <clears throat> scholars argue about, but isn't really shouldn't really detain us here. But if you put these two together, <clears throat> these two maps of how people voted by county in 2020 and where people live in the United States, again. Uh, the correlation is pretty tight and pretty obvious. Uh, with the exception of those black belt counties, so-called, that stretch through the old cotton belt in the southeast, where there's a heavy African-American population intended to vote for Democratic candidate, Joe Biden, with that uh, partial exception, the correlation between these urban metropolitan areas in the west, especially along the Pacific coast, the northeast, and the southeast, the correlation between where people live and how people voted is very, very tight. And we see those counties that voted Democratic are the, the most populous, densely populated counties in the United States. Uh, here's something else that is represented in this map. It's a schematic map. And it takes a moment maybe to stare at it to really understand what it represents. This shows the results from the 2016 election, not 2020. And it shows on the left side uh, in blue, the counties that voted for Hillary Clinton, the Democratic candidate in 2016. And the size of the cell of the county, look at Los Angeles County up there in the upper left-hand corner. The size of the cell indicates the population density or size of the county. And again, you'll notice it's, it, with a moment's reflection, it's obvious what's going on here. The Democratic counties tend to be quite populous. And this is just another way of representing what I was just talking about, about how the most densely populated places tend to be democratic. And you look on the right side, and many of the counties represented by their, their, the cell size in this schematic, represented by the size of the cell, representing the population of the county, 
most of them are so small that you couldn't possibly put a label on them. There's just not room in the graphic to put a label on them. Whereas the Clinton counties, lots of them are big enough that you can actually print the label on the county. The point, the thing I want to emphasize here, however, is not just that more densely populated counties voted Democratic in 2016, as they did again in 2020, but also I want to call your attention to what's up at the top of the screen there, that of the approximately 480 counties that voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016, those counties accounted for nearly two thirds of gross domestic product which is a slightly technical way of saying that the counties that voted Democratic were the most economically dynamic, the most productive, if you want to put it in these terms, the most economically successful counties in the United States. It's a minority of counties by number, but in terms of their economic weight and their productive capacity and general affluence, uh, those are the places that tended to vote Democratic in 2016. Here are the results, the same kind of schematic put together for the 2020 election. And what we see is that the approximately, again, 500 counties that voted for a Democratic candidate, Joe Biden, those counties ac accounted for about 70% of GDP. So we see a deepening here, even over a four, the four-year span between 2016 and 2020, we see a deepening of the trend of a relative, minor, minor, relative minority of counties account for a disproportionate share of GDP. So it, 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 this is a very elaborate roundabout way, I guess, of saying that what we, we, have, what we have seen in the last two electoral cycles is the increasing segregation of our electorate by geography um, more urban, metropolitan, suburban voters vote Democratic uh, heavily, and more rural districts vote uh, uh, Republican. And that urban-rural divide also correlates rather strongly with economic dynamism and prosperity. So the most prosperous and economically successful counties are the ones that tend to vote Democratic, and the others tend to vote Republican. So I want to take us back now briefly to 1787. I did not introduce 1787 Constitutional Convention totally whimsically. I want to refer to it again because I want to talk about something that's been much in the news, much discussed lately, and that has to do with the alleged dysfunctionality of the Electoral College. Uh, I'm just personally much less excited about that matter, that the Electoral College is dysfunctional than are many other analysts. And I say that as a person who is going to Sacramento this coming Monday into the assembly chamber, and I will cast my vote as an elector from the state of California for the Trump-Harris ticket, pardon me, the Biden-Harris ticket that uh, clearly is certified as the winner of the vote in California. So I'm going to be an elector as it happens in this cycle. Um, and that is not why uh, I'm telling you that I'm not on the bandwagon to abolish the Electoral College. It's not because I'm going to be an elector. The fact is that we've had now 58 presidential elections since uh, 1789. And the uh, Electoral College vote and the popular vote have not been congruent in only five of those. So in 53 out of 58 presidential elections, there's been no problem about the uh, disparity between the popular vote and the Electoral College vote. 
So I take that to be a kind of a glitch in the system, but not really a fatal defect. Uh, it's pretty infrequent, frankly, frankly, over the course of historical time for there to be that disparity. And it usually is not all that troublesome. One of the instances, for example, was in 1788, pardon me, 1888. Nobody got terribly excited about that. It was simply just remarked that there was a disparity without much to do about it. Two of those instances have been recently, of course. The five are uh, 1824, 1876, which was a big deal, uh, 1888, uh, 2000, and 2016. And some people will say, well, 2000, 2016, those are uh, two cases just 12, 16 years apart. Well, 1776, the seven, pardon me, 1886, 1876, and 1888 were only 12 years apart. And so what? So. In any case, even if we do get excited about the dysfunctionality of the Electoral College, the practical difficulty of changing that in the Constitution is not trivial. Uh, if it were to be changed by constitutional amendment, just remember what the constitutional requirement is for passing an amendment. There, there's a reason why we've only had 20 some odd amendments in over two centuries, because it's very difficult to amend the Constitution. You have to have majority, supermajority votes in both chambers of Congress. Two thirds of each chamber has to send the amendment to the states, and then three quarters of the states have to signify their agreement before you get a constitutional amendment. So the barrier is very, very high uh, to amend the Constitution, and I think the, the the prospect of amending the Electoral College out of the Constitution is just uh, out of the question. There are at least seven states. Uh, that have uh, only one representative and two senators. So they have three electoral college votes. It's uh, the two Dakotas, uh, Wyoming, Montana, Delaware, Vermont, and I'm missing one that I can't remember at the moment. But in any case, there are seven states uh, that have only three electoral college votes. They will never vote to abolish the electoral college because their electoral weight would then be significantly diminished. And there's another somewhat comparable number of states that only have four electoral college votes and they might do a similar calculation that if they lost population relative to others, they too would have much less weight in the electoral college going forward. So it is a practical matter, I think. It's just ridiculous to think that we could get rid of the electoral college. But there's another implication of that great compromise in 1787 that gave us the two electoral pardon me, the two uh, legislative chambers of House of Representatives and Senate. And I think the more troublesome issue today in the 21st century is not the occasional fact that the Electoral College and the popular uh, vote are not the same, but the increasing disparity of uh, representation in the Senate and in the uh, um, Electoral College and in the electoral machinery generally. So the projection is, if you take a look at this slide here, that by 2040, which is not all that far in the future, uh, eight states, you'll see them represented here, New York, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Illinois, Texas, and California, eight states will have more than 50% of the U.S. population. So this is, again, a, a further representation of the deepening demographic trend of us as a people to live in more densely populated and fewer places than was once the case. We're not as evenly distributed as a people across the country as we were 
50 or 100 years ago. And again, here, here's the more practical implication of this. If we look at population by state in the year 2040, we will see that 30% uh, of the population, which lives in outside of those eight states that contain the majority of the population, will control 68% of seats in the Senate. So the Senate is on its way to becoming an increasingly unrepresentative body. And yet it remain, retains a lot of residual power given its constitutional status as the upper chamber, the place that must be advised with and, con and must consent to executive office appointments. It's the place that must consider and ratify treaties. Uh, it's the place that obviously has to ratify judicial appointments. Its, its constitutional function is still very, very important. And it is on its way to becoming, it's already a long way toward this objective. It's on its way to becoming even more unrepresentative of the people, of the American people at large. So let me um, conclude this part of the presentation uh, and get to the discussion with Roy and conversation with you as technology allows by making a few final um, observations about something else that's very much uh, in the popular prints and in political discourse today, and it has to do with polarization. And what are the drivers of polarization? Um, this is a rich and complicated discussion. I don't pretend to have uh, a full um, explanation ready to present to you here today, but let me just uh, propose three developments. One you might call technological, and the other two, maybe are mislabeled as developments. They're kind of constants of human nature uh, that have come into play recently in our political life. The structural or technological <clears throat> factor is what uh, Roy, I think, has already referred to as the fragmentation of the media. Uh, that where a generation or so ago, there was a relatively finite number of national media, the, the network television and a few flagship newspapers were the sources through which most of the citizenry received most of their political information. That world is dead and gone. It cannot be revived. It's been absolutely exploded uh, through the proliferation of all kinds of media outlets through cable television and otherwise and streaming and of course, social media. So that technologically we now live in a overpopulated media environment where there's an almost endless number of channels of information, misinformation, and downright disinformation that is disseminated out to the public at large. So that's a technological structural fact about the period in which we're living in. And it's very difficult for me and others to see how we can dismantle that technology, I think is here to stay. When you put that technology together with two characteristics of human nature that uh, we've become more increasingly aware of in the last several years, thanks to the work of so-called behavioral economists like Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, um, especially their demonstration of how powerful is the human tendency toward what's called confirmation bias. That is the readiness of all of us, and let's not forget all of us, <laughs> to put more faith and credulity in those opinions that reaffirm our existing opinions, that we're, we're more inclined to agree with people who already agree with us. That's just a, it's just a fact of human nature. And you put that together with the proliferation of social media, which can target people 
having algorithmically discovered what they believe in to a large extent anyway, that their existing beliefs are just confirmed, reconfirmed, and re-reconfirmed almost on a daily, even an hourly basis, thanks to the exploitation, I use that word advisedly, of the natural human tendency toward um, uh, confirmation bias. So that's one factor that seems to me to be very difficult to think through about how one might mitigate or even dream on, reverse the mischief that the merger of media fragmentation and confirmation bias presents us with. Final point, and I'm gonna use an $8 word here, uh, homophily. Homophily means from the Greek, <clears throat> The, the love of the same. And again, this is a human tendency to want to congregate with and live with people who are like-minded with whom we are simpatico or compatible. And in a really terrifically insightful book published a few years ago by a, a journalist, uh, Bill Bishop, called The Big Sort, uh, he laid out in considerable detail how much homophilic redistribution of the American population there has been in the last couple of generations. This is, again, a perverse, you might say, side effect of affluence. The people can choose where they live to a degree that wasn't true historically. People lived where work was, and lived where they had to, or lived where their family was. But now people can have tremendous discretion about where they can take up residence. And increasingly, we've been, we are now living in places where we're surrounded by like-minded friends and neighbors. And that's what Bishop calls the big sort. So I'll just leave you with a few uh, numbers about this. Actually, this is gonna be my penultimate point. I'm gonna make one additional. <clears throat> but um, in 1980, the, the presidential election of 1980, the number of what are called landslide counties, that is counties where the the separation of the two candidates in the vote count was less, it was, pardon me, more than 20%, where one candidate won by more than 20%. The percentage of counties out of those 3,100 counties <clears throat> that were landslide counties with overwhelming majorities for one part or the other was 13%. In 2000, the number of landslide counties, again, where one party or the other won by more than 20%, was 19%. In 2020, the election just passed, the number of landslide counties where the county voted by more than 20%, one way or the other, either red or blue, was 50%. So in the last couple of decades, that recently, we have sorted ourselves out, uh, thanks to the principle of homophily, to live with like-minded people, and we don't hear views in daily conversation or on social media or through whatever our media outlets are that disagree with or differ very much from our own. So we are powerfully reinforced in our pre-existing political situations. Okay, last point, and then I'm back to you, Roy, and uh, conversation with our auditors and viewers. Um, and I have, this has, this is kind of a gratuitous point, not about polarization so much as political realignment. <clears throat> Again, popular prints lately have informed us that to a lot of people's surprise, uh, Donald Trump made significant inroads into African-American and Hispanic or Latino, Latinx uh, populations, in, particularly in the Southeast and Florida and around in the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, but here's another recently, uh, to me at least recently, uh, demonstrated 
fact that uh, tells us we are living in, who knows whether it's reversible or not, significant political realignment. And I go back to that county level analysis again. There are, by calculation and analysis, in, out of the 3,000 plus American counties, there are about 265, 265 counties where at least 40% of the workforce is blue collar. So these are counties that historically would have been part of the fabled New Deal Democratic Coalition, safe for the Democratic Party. 265 counties where at least 40% of the workforce is identified as blue collar. Of those 265 counties, the Democratic candidate, Joe Biden, won 15, won five. Now that tells me something pretty robust about how working class voters are trending toward the party that historically was not the party of the working class, but the Republican party. And that bespeaks some kind of deep seismic shift, it seems to me, in the political orientation of our society and uh, our political future. So Roy, I'm gonna stop there. I think I've probably exceeded my time. I apologize for that, but uh, happy to turn it back to you for questions and conversation. Well, thank you, David. You didn't exceed your time because it, you took on a monumental uh, array of concepts there. And it's, a, it's, it's fascinating to start thinking about them. Um, what I'm going to do, because I'm looking at the, my window with the audience questions, I, and there's some terrific questions here. So I'm just going to start there and see how many of those we can get in. Um, because the audience is really the important part here, not me. So the first question or several questions rotate around um, loss of trust, uh, trust in our institutions. And uh, we've seen graphs and so forth. But could you comment on the changes that we've seen in the confidence that we have in our various governance institutions? Yeah, it's a, that, that's an excellent question. And uh, on another occasion, I could, you know, I'm not going to do it today, but I could put up some pretty sobering uh, graphic data about uh, the, the erosion of trust in our society, <clears throat> dating from when we begin to get reliable data about this, the 1950s. But uh, I can summarize the data pretty, pretty uh, clearly, I believe, that you name the institution, Congress, the judiciary, the courts, uh, the, the, the presidency, um, the churches, uh, the Boy Scouts, um, the media, you, you name the institution that really constitute the foundations and pillars of our collective life. With, it, with one big exception, and I'll get to the exception in just a moment, as a people, we have measurably lost confidence in our national institutions. Now, of course, the question that immediately follows on the heels of that observation is why. Uh, that's maybe a topic a little too big and complicated and impossible to resolve for us on this occasion. But I'd say at least part of the explanation is that those institutions have failed us to some degree in the last couple of generations in a way that people now realize and take account of. The exception to that pattern that I just mentioned is also worth pausing on for a moment, because the one institution that commands more respect in our society today than it did a generation or two ago is the military. Now, this has, I think, something to do with the fact that we have an all-volunteer military. And again, it's my personal belief 
it's not, not entirely a whimsical idea, but it's my personal belief that part of the respect and deference we give to the military today is in part at least motivated by gratitude that we and our sons and daughters are not in harm's way in a conscripted or draft military force. And we were glad that somebody else is bearing those burdens and therefore we give them deference. But it's the only institution of any consequence in our society that has more, in which people have more confidence today than they did a generation or two ago. And again, whenever I mention this, I wanna be clear, I am not predicting by any means that we are on the verge of some kind of military coup. I think that would be an outlandish uh, proposition given the facts and evidence. But I will say that if you look around the historical landscape, th those societies going back as far as you care to go in time <clears throat> that have lost confidence in all of their leaders except the generals uh, are not examples that we should be particularly eager to emulate. So I think this is a concern that we should pay attention to and worry about. But to repeat, I am not by any means predicting that we're on the verge of some kind of military coup. Another level of this general issue is has to do not only with our confidence in institutions, which is markedly and measurably less than it was, but even more disturbingly in my mind is the fact that we have lost confidence in each other uh, as citizens. And again, I don't have it to hand here, but there's abundant data. No matter how you parse it, you can parse it by region, by education level, by race and ethnicity, and by age, no matter how you parse it, uh, all categories have lost confidence and trust in their fellow citizens. We, we just trust each other less than we did. And um, the white people are somewhat more trusting than people of color, but the difference is really not terribly material. And uh, the one that's most disturbing to me is when you parse the data by age group, it's millennials, the youngest amongst us, who are the most mistrustful. So if we're talking about the future of democracy, we're talking about the future of the youngest people among us, and they are the most disillusioned with formal institutions and the most mistrustful of one another and their fellow citizens generally. That, that's a pretty disturbing set of uh, facts, it seems to me. Um, yeah, and so... Take the axis of of millennials and their trust in, let's say, in Congress. Um, is is there a lower level of trust at that age level than maybe in the, in over sixty five? Um, to be honest, at least off the top of my head, I don't remember the trusted institutions data being broken down by uh, age. Um, it's highly likely that that has been done, but frankly, I, at least off the top of my head, I don't have access to those data. That's okay. The, uh, it was just a quick thought. The um, uh, point you made about the Senate, someone um, brings up uh, a comment, and I think it's um, appropriate, that if you take the numbers that you had in your last slide, they become exacerbated if you consider the so-called 60-vote uh, major, uh, majority rule in the Senate, where for most significant legislation, it takes 60 votes to pass it. So that skews those numbers even further. Is that is that accurate? Absolutely right. That the, um, the filibuster rule um, or norm uh, amplifies and exacerbates the already unrepresentative character of the body. 
because now you need not simply a majority, which is hard enough anyway, but you need a super majority to do business for a lot of things. Which uh, then seems to me turns around and you have a Senate that does nothing. So it legitimately increases our lack of confidence that we're going to get any productivity at all out of the congressional side of our um, three branches of government, which takes me to another question here that take that goes back on to your point about the original um, founding fathers. And that is that under the, if you look at the constitution under article one is the Congress, and that's a very long section. If you go to article two about the president, it's a relatively short section dealing mostly with impeachment and, and uh, how to the electoral college works. How did that, and this questioner makes the assumption, and I think it's valid, that that showed a, a preference in the original framers for emphasis on the on governance by our legislature. But we've moved today towards a, a, a strong executive and an ineffective legislature. And it, could you quickly describe the dialectic by how we got here? <laughs> Uh, I can describe it, but I'm not sure I can do it quickly, <laughs> but I'll do my best because, again, there's a lot of history behind this. But, um, yeah, the, the the again, I don't quote me on the exact numbers, but I think Article One of the Constitution, which deals with the legislature, uh, has 50-some-odd paragraphs, and Article Two, which deals with the executive, has, I believe, it's 15 paragraphs which again, just on the face of it, suggests very strongly that the, the founders thought that the locus, the center of gravity of the political system was in the Congress, not in the executive. And again, if we recollect that down to roughly the 1830s, the age of Andrew Jackson, presidential candidates were put forward by, or nominated if you want, by congressional caucuses which uh, meant that we had a kind of de facto, this is a bit of an exaggeration, but a kind of a de facto parliamentary system where parliamentary majorities really um, chose um, uh, the executive branch, as in the British system, where the prime minister is the head of the majority party in the parliament is also the executive. Uh, That's not our system formally, but it was kind of de facto. It looked a lot like that for the first half century of national existence. In the 1820s and 30s, especially in the 30s, uh, there began to form something that the founders had not anticipated. Uh, We know them as political parties. And the parties then took the presidential nominating business away from the Congress and parties and all their members met in would meet in conventions uh, to nominate their candidates and congressional caucuses were no longer the mechanism by which presidential candidates were put forward. Uh, and, And we still have conventions. But the last convention uh, that went to a second ballot, that is to say where the, the uh, where it was not a foregone conclusion when the convention convened, who was going to be the nominee, was 1952 <laughs> in the Democratic convention. It took two ballots to get Adlai Stevenson nominated. So conventions were served the purpose of mass participation through political parties in nominating presidential candidates for a little over a century. But uh, something's happened in our own time that has actually rendered conventions now essentially infomercials, which they they don't really have much business to do. They just beat the drum for their candidate and try to drum up enthusiasm. And the big change uh, is a product essentially of 
period 1968 to 72, when first the Democrats, then the Republicans went to the widespread, now virtually universal use of primaries. So the electorate at large and through the mechanism of primary elections is now the principal mechanism or avenue through which presidential candidates get nominated. And of course, that was done in the name of more democracy, more direct participation by the citizenry in selecting political leadership. Very hard to argue with that, given the foundational principles of democracy. But the, the, the primary system has now contributed powerfully, it seems to me, to the uh, not only to the, the, the evisceration of, of political parties and their marginalization as organizations in our political culture, but has contributed to polarization. Because what do we know about primaries? It's the most um, zealous members of whatever party who show up for primaries. It's not the, it's not the median voter by and large. So we get more extreme candidates as a direct result of relying more on primary elections to bring candidates forward. Now, if, if you asked me to do this uh, quickly, and I told you I couldn't, so I'm, <laughs> I'm going to add a note to that. <clears throat> and and uh, Roy, this may actually cut across the, the grain of something you suggested earlier about the ever more powerful president. I, it's, I'm trying to write a book about this. Let's, I'll see if I can pull it off. But um, it seems to me that the argument I'm trying to make in the book under consideration is that we have, in fact, fetishized the presidency. And this is something that's been going on for better part of a century. It begins, I think, particularly in the era of Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, where there was a pretty self-conscious and articulate body of thought that the Congress was incapable of coherent government, and that, but the president was a place. It was, it was in, the presidency was an institution where you could really muster the kind of focus and energy that was commensurate with and appropriate to the scale and complexity of a modern urban industrial society. Something that the designedly fragmented and parochial institution of the Congress simply couldn't do. So Woodrow Wilson, for example summed up a lot of this argument when he famously said, the president is at liberty in law and in conscience to be as big a man as he possibly can. And dating is, dating is precisely as impossible, but dating somewhere around the turn of the 19th to 20th century. More and more political hope and aspiration and ambition got invested in the presidency and the president is the person who could really deliver. And it's beginning in the early 20th century and continuing right down to the present day, the presidents run on programmatic platforms, square deal, new freedom, new deal, fair deal. Some would say today ordeal, but the president becomes the spokesperson for a coherent policy package that is the platform on which he or she runs for the office, promising the electorate that he, the president, powerful person that he is going to get it done. And we know what happens. Presidents, powerful as they allegedly are, can't get much done. They need the Congress. And the Congress remains this parochial, divided, fractured, fragmented body that is just very difficult to muster around anything. So we have these bursts of legislative creativity or consequence in our history. Civil War and Reconstruction period is one, largely because most of the South was out of the Congress, and essentially it was a one-party Congress for a decade or so. 
The New Deal, same situation. The Democratic Party was overwhelmingly in the majority. There were only, I think, 16 Republican senators after the election of 1936. And uh, another case would be the Great Society in the 1960s when Lyndon Johnson had huge majorities in both chambers. But absent that alignment, we, we just, the president is really hamstrung by the strictures of the Constitution. So I, I, and at the same time, political entrepreneurs become presidential candidates, not disciplined by the structure of their parties, as used to be the case. So they can promise the moon and the stars and all the universe, and they can't deliver it. So it's a recipe for chronic frustration uh, and disappointment in our political system. Oh, and then you add in the, um, the escape valve for the president of the executive order which uh, often strikes me as being used more for messaging than for actual impact. Yeah, and almost by definition, <clears throat> executive orders lack, well, by, by definition, they lack statutory authority or standing, <clears throat> and they are notoriously impermanent. The, the next executive, if he happens to differ with the preceding one, can void the order, reverse the order. I mean, look, look at what the Trump administration did with the with the Obama's executive order about DACA, about Dreamers. So it's it's not a very uh, stable, rational way to do legislative or political business. No, but it's as I say, it's the default position for a president who just can't get the Congress to even take up his bills. Let me move to um, another uh, topic that. Um, has been several people have brought this up. Um, this go this kind of pulls our lens back more broadly. You've written about the American people in the during the Depression and during World War II, which were times of national crisis. Certainly, um, I think that's incontestable. And we're we are undergoing a similar period now with the combination of the pandemic and economic change and the fractionalization, you say, of confidence in our governmental systems. How would you compare the American psyche during the period of the Depression and World War II to, to what we see today in in our own behaviors? Well, another excellent question to which I had a commensurately excellent answer, <clears throat> but I'll, I'll, I can offer a few thoughts. I don't know if they're fully, uh, um, will fully answer the questioner's question. But at the outset of the Great Depression, let's remember it, it actually appears on the historical scene uh, on Herbert Hoover's watch, um, conventionally dated from, the, from 1929 as the onset moment for the Depression. And there was active debate, in, not just amongst politicians, but in the country at large, for the first several years of the Depression, years, well into Franklin Roosevelt's first term, as to what, what, if anything, was the appropriate role for the federal government to play in the face of a crisis like this. Of course, it was a black swan event. People didn't really understand with the degree of clarity we now have just what was the scale and the velocity of the crisis. <clears throat> but people knew something pretty serious and terrible was going on. But it was not at all clear that there was consensus in the body politic about whether the government, federal government and state governments for that matter, had a legitimate role to play. So as a people and as a society, it seems to be part of the legacy that comes out of that period is we, we do come to some agreement as a society 
that in the face of a crisis of that kind of magnitude, the Great Depression and others, it's not only uh, appropriate for the government to play a counterpunching or remedial role, it's, it's obligatory. It's, it's absolutely necessary. And again, if, if for proof of that thesis or hypothesis or statement, I give you the, the way both the outgoing Bush 43 administration and the incoming, incoming Obama administration behaved in the face of the 2008-2009 financial crisis. There was virtually no debate in either party or anywhere as to whether or not the government should do something. The question was simply what, on what scale and how fast. Uh, and they did, the, both, both, both administrations, outgoing and incoming, uh, reacted very vigorously and counterpunched on with very big federal fiscal and monetary and other muscle against that crisis and stopped it in its tracks. Again, the contrast with what happened in 1929, 30, 31, 32, 33 is really pretty dramatic. So we, we have shifted our schedule of values, if I can put it that way, as a people. We now expect government to uh, do something um, in the face of a crisis, whether it's economic or public health or medical case of COVID. That doesn't mean we agree on the method, the particular method, the particular policy. But there is an expectation, nonetheless, that wasn't there two, three, four generations ago, that government is the instrument of our collective will. And it's, it's not just there to maintain law and order and then get out of the way. It has bigger responsibilities. And I think even, even in uh, Donald Trump's Republican Party, especially some of the younger people coming along in that party, I think particularly here of people like uh, Josh Hawley, from the junior senator from Missouri, who is firmly in Trump's camp, but even he talks about uh, the need for government to go big in the face of the twin medical or public health and economic crises that we're now in. Well, um, there seems to be, however, a disinclination to sit down and, and allocate, let's limit it to the pandemic, allocate where the responsibilities for public health exist within the states and where they exist within the federal government. Um, and, and I think most of us find that puzzling because, it, you know, going back to the analogy of World War II, all of the defense efforts were national. You know, you didn't have states building B-29 bombers. Uh, it was a national pulling together. And I think the, what's behind the question is, what have we lost? Why, why can't we pull together in a time like this when we were able to do it so well during World War II? Well, again, I, I share the puzzlement about that. Uh, this, and you've articulated it very well, Roy. Um, Maybe one way to think about it is that in the current crises, especially the pandemic crisis, uh, we're um, realizing the, the, how can I put this, the, the, the wages, you might say, of federalism, that we still have a lot of uh, legacy attachment to the idea of local government control, and that came to the fore in this matter, although that's... I'm putting the best face on it when I put it that way. I, I do think we saw, frankly, a failure of leadership at the national level. And the, the response should have been nationalized at the front end of this crisis and consistently carried through thereafter. That, that's my own view. Um, another vector, uh, we're almost out of time, but I, I love that several people have brought up in different ways, is um, 
how, how can I? Well, Richard Hofstadter wrote a book, remember, Anti-Intellectualism in American Life. And uh, the question is, how much of that dominates our um, societal theme, seemingly societal inability to settle on a single set of facts, to settle on a single set of authority, to settle on the importance of uh, logic and reason and rational thinking. Um, you know where I'm going with this. The whole issue of um, our anti-intellectualism, to choose Hofstetter's term, and the role that plays in the democratic process. Well, I think Hofstetter was correct, and he wrote that essay, that this is a something that's deep-seated in our national DNA. It's not just an artifact of the modern moment. It's been there for a long, long time. And it is a kind of a radical application, I guess, of the idea of equality. If, if our founding, our most foundational principle is all men are created equal, that means, I mean, to put it in, again, the popular idiom, I'm as good as the next fella, if not a darn sight better. Um, and it, that, that's just been part of our culture, I think, from the outset. So we're distrustful of anybody who asserts any kind of authority based on greater wealth, knowledge, standing, status, and so on. Um, and that, that bleeds over into mistrust or skepticism about what many people regard, would regard as demonstrably accurate expert data and interpretation of the data. So, yeah, I, I think it's, it's just a feature of our culture that becomes particularly troublesome at moments like the current one when you really need to have confidence in the experts, understanding that even they will in their most candid moments confess they don't have 100% of the answers, but they got more than the rest of us do. But we're, we're just reflexively distrustful of them. I trust people more who tell me they don't know everything than people who tell me they do, <laughs> right? Certain honesty doesn't, doesn't hurt. Um, last question, David, is that this goes to your role as a historian, and that is as we uh, undermine our confidence in what we'll call facts. To me, facts have always been like quarks, you know, the fundamental building block of policy discussion or policy debate starts from an, an agreed set of facts. How does your profession deal today with the uh, um, multiplicity of factual renditions of the same event. Well, frankly, uh, multiple interpretations of the same set of facts is what keeps people like me in business. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're constantly debating, arguing with one another, and over generations we argue with one another about how to make sense out of this or that or the other event, person, development, whatever it might be. So, it is, I mean, somebody, I forget, he's a British historian, once described the work of the historian or historians collectively is to chew on various interpretations around a hard core of facts. So the, the empirical basis of historical work, yeah. it seems to me, is reasonably straightforward and not much disagreement about that. New, new factual data do sometimes come to light. That's true. Archive opens up or what have you. But by and large, that's not the way historical understanding advances. It's if history is a as a discipline, as a way of thinking, is a dialogue between the present and the past. The present is always changing. We we live moment to moment, year to year, into different presents, and our 
our lens or our perspective, our angle of vision on the past thereby changes. We have different questions than we used to, and that dialogue is always changing. But the basic factual data is a pretty stable compound. Uh, but uh, to make that concrete, when I was going through graduate training to become an historian back in the 1960s uh, in American history, there were certain topics that just weren't visible. Uh, they just no, nobody really articulated them or paid attention to them. For example, women's history. For another example, environmental history. They were topics, especially environmental history. That if you'd said that phrase to somebody in a graduate training program in 1962, they wouldn't know what you're talking about. Now that's become a big deal. And it isn't because the facts of the environment in the past have changed. It's because we're, we're interrogating the past on that dimension in a way that we didn't used to. And we're learning a lot. So I think history is a dynamic discipline. It's always changing and we're always asking new questions and coming up with, we hope, with what we hope are better answers. Well, thank you, David. That's a perfect um, ending for this first of our hopefully many uh, discourses on the future of democracy. And one of our challenges will be uh, picking our facts, you know, getting, making sure we are open-minded and making sure that we present all sides of a question, but that we don't present so many sides of a question that we, our discussion becomes kaleidoscopic. Well, you remember, uh, you remember Daniel Patrick Monaghan's famous dictum, uh, you're entitled to your own opinions, but not to your own facts. Exactly. Um, that's, that's, uh, a homily that's in resonates, but difficult to apply in, in human discourse, it seems. Um, so, David, I want to thank you very much for a wonderful introduction. What you've given us is a sense of how we have to look back to how, where we started and how we um, originally conceptualized this uh, country in order to discuss uh, where we're going from here, what the vector from today forward is going to be. And that's what we'll be talking about. So I thank you on behalf of the Commonwealth Club. I thank you on behalf of all of our viewers. And with that, I'm going to officially end this and the Commonwealth Club is hereby adjourned. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.